On this episode, I interviewed Sasha Berger, who is a physical therapist, athletic trainer, and strength and conditioning coach, currently working at Vald, based in Brisbane, Queensland, Australia. The main topic of this podcast was talking about integration of the Vald technology and technology in general within health and looking at it as more of a measurement tool than just a sports performance tool. So the main topics discussed here were how Sasha views tech as a measurement tool more than just performance where he recommends to start for integration and use, how he utilizes tech during the initial objective assessment, not only for return to sport testing, how he explains the use of the findings to the patient, preseason screening, importance of making sense of the data, how often to test, um, using it as not only testing, but as part of the rehab process and exercises, and then how some practitioners have gotten creative with some custom ISO testing with involved. So great comprehensive episode. Here it is. Welcome to No Weak Links with Patrick Wood. The purpose of this podcast is to help you learn up-to-date evidence-based content and knowledge through life experiences. This podcast is perfect for athletes, strength and conditioning coaches, rehab professionals, or anyone in the sports performance or sports medicine industry. So please... Have a listen, and I hope you enjoy. Welcome to No Week Links. I'm your host, Patrick Wood, and today I have on Sasha Berger, who is a physical therapist, athletic trainer, and strength and conditioning coach working for Vald, currently based in Brisbane. Um, thank you for taking the time to be on, Sasha. First off, uh, we'll get, get you to do a little intro on yourself um, and then we can dive into our main theme and go from there. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think um, I've uh, I haven't been been in this position before. I've heard a lot of people do this, um, so I got to go through the cliche failed athlete story. Um, and so I think that was part of what's gotten me to where I am. Um, I think the one lesson I learned early on was I wasn't going to be sitting at a desk. So I mean, maybe we keep this whole conversation short because sitting sitting still is difficult for me. Um, but that sort of led me down the course of going into the allied health, uh, strength and conditioning, athletic training, physical therapy space. I think one of the things that guided me, and I'm probably going to butcher this a bit because um, I don't have it written in front of me, but I think the American Physical Therapy Association's mission statement, um, mission or vision, I get those two confused, um, is imp- I think it's improving so- improving society through enhancing movement to improve the human experience. I should check that to be sure. But essentially, I'd interpret that to mean improving people's lives through movement. And so to me, being able to move physically has kind of afforded me all the things I like to do. And that sort of driven me down this path of, of chasing the uh, physio route. Um, so yeah, I guess, I don't know how that answer is, but... Yeah, no, no, no perfect. Yeah, it's, it's good. Yeah, and having that physical therapy, athletic training, strength and conditioning combination of, of seeing rehab and performance and movement all through different lenses and merging it together is a, I think that's a big thing as well. So, um, obviously once you graduated, done a couple different things, but working at Valve the last couple of years, uh, using the technology, which has really expanded and, and gone through, you know, a lot of different ways, especially in the sports performance realm, but it's, um, obviously what you're working with now is a lot of the rehab health space. So, um, I guess one thing, our main topic today is, you know, utilization of that tech as a as a measure and then talking about the measurement, sorry, in more of a broad approach. So uh, when, you, when you kind of talked about this topic, it was uh, resonated with me as, you know, I, I think a lot of people do look at this purely from a sports performance in, um, way. And so do you want to just chat a little bit about, you know, how you think about using the technology um, and how you try to explain it to customers and patients? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, 
I think I've been afforded a great opportunity to be here and, and be involved in this sort of thing. Um, and I, I think we're lucky because people really idolize sport. And I think athletes are looked at as sort of the pinnacle of human performance. And so if an athlete is doing something around physical performance, anyone's going to want to do it. Um, I don't know if it's a great analogy, but I, I kind of think that if, if you had a car and you had to take it to a mechanic and there was a mechanic, two mechanics nearby and, and one just you know, worked, on, worked on your average car and the other one worked on race cars or had a, ba- had a background in the F1, you kind of say, well, you know, they've dealt with the pinnacle of performance in automotive. I'd want to go there. And so I think being able to say that we've provided some measurement solutions to those organizations has really gotten people on board because simply people want to be in a position where they can use some of the same equipment that those at the elite level of performance are using as well. Um, But that being said, it's given us a bit more of a responsibility to kind of dispel that myth around this is performance equipment, where really what it is is measurement equipment that's been used in performance. And so I think measurement is something that anyone can benefit from and being able to translate what we've done from a performance standpoint into the general population is not necessarily the challenge, um, but it has been one of the main efforts. And so taking some of the things that we've done, getting people to buy in often by using that tactic of telling them, you know, who's your favorite sports team? They're the ones who use this as well. People might get a little bit more interested in it and being able to show them some normative data around what their favorite sporting organization might do. So, you know, do they want to know what how, how high someone in the uh, in the NBA jumps on average? They could look that up um, using some of the normative data sets we we provide. And ultimately, I think anyone is looking to improve adherence, and so it's just another tactic to to do that. Um, I hope that sort of answers that question. No, yeah, I think um, yeah, like I said, as you mentioned, it's a measurement tool, and and we can talk more about that in a second, but. Uh, Sometimes if someone's never done this or if it's, you know, you, you have all these different pieces of equipment, you have all this different data you're getting, where do you recommend people start use, utilizing this in that health rehab space? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think ultimately um, before you like looking at the content is great. You can read about the, these pieces of equipment. You might be familiar with some of them, um, understanding, you know, how, how force measurement is important, range of motion measurement is important as well. Um, but understanding the context of this and sort of where it fits in. And I think ultimately speaking, we're, you know, most of us are still taught that sort of soap process of subjective, objective assessment plan and where this technology fits in. And, and to me, and I think to the broader population, it's it's objective assessment technology. And so using this tech can be a bit daunting to people because I think we're used to our manual muscle testing and, and knowing what it is that we want to test. And so really not being too intimidated by seeing machines that are available for those these sorts of things and just understanding that, simply put, it's, it's another way to measure the impairments that we're treating. And I think one of the things that I've come back to, which is really important and not necessarily undervaluing, if anything, I think it just kind of puts things into better context. But as a physio or physical therapist, I think we need to be clear with people that we don't necessarily treat the pathoanatomical conditions. Um, I would jokingly say to a patient, look, if you've come in and you've ruptured your ACL, I'm not going to put that back together for you. I don't have the tools to do that. This is not an operating room. I'm not going to put that back together for you. That's for a surgeon to do. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to figure out all the impairments that you present with as a result of that. So what's what's your balance like? What's your strength like? What's your range of motion like? Those are the things that I can help enhance. And so using this technology is just a way for us to measure the magnitude of those impairments and subsequently track the treatment that we've provided to see 
how it's working. Um, and I've recently used the analogy of, you know, if you if you go to an orthopedic surgeon, they're broadly concerned with the structure of the musculoskeletal system. So if you've got a fracture, they're going to want to understand the integrity of that bone to help determine what it is that they do. So in making that decision, they would use their objective measurement tool, which might be and most likely some type of radiological imaging. So their way of understanding the structure that they're treating is radiological imaging. If a physical therapist wants to really understand the function that they're looking to improve, using objective measurement would probably be, in my mind, the analogous tool for that. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a great comparison there. And, and we spoke briefly beforehand on an example um, that you had with a patient recently uh, about how to how to use this. So if you maybe want to chat about um, that fracture you had in, in a way that you then just utilize even the balance um, to, to treat and, and um, objectify that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this was um, just just to put this in context for the overall thought process. And I think this is something that just to kind of go back to your last question for a second, I think one of the things that I've seen a lot recently is that when people look to adopt this technology, often what they want to do is be told, what tests do I do with certain presentations and what metrics do I look at? Um, And I'm, I'm never in a position where I don't want to help someone integrate this technology, but I'm a bit hesitant to give people that information because I think what it does is it promotes this sort of rote learning approach where people try and memorize exactly what to do with what patient. And to me, that's not going to necessarily make anyone better with the equipment. So a quick story of that is, you know, people have asked, you know, what are the tests that you do on force plates for an ACL, right? And you can go through and there might be some pragmatic tests for, you know, early stage, mid stage, end stage of rehab. And I could easily provide that for someone and tell them exactly what metrics to look at. But if I did that, and then someone walked into the clinic with early stage knee osteoarthritis, that clinician might say, oh, look, I've got this really cool tech, but I I don't know what the tests are for knee OA. So we're probably going to stay away from this. Whereas if we teach people how to think about it rather than how to memorize what tests to do, they'll be much more successful. So if you compare those two conditions side by side and any condition for that matter, and instead of thinking about the condition or the structure necessarily, obviously you have to keep that in mind, but think about the impairments that are associated with those two. So if someone's maybe a late stage ACL rehab or an early stage um, osteoarthritis in the knee, you might be thinking, well, their balance might be restricted somewhat and somewhat impaired. So we can measure that. Their range of motion might still be limited and their strength is probably going to be limited. And those are three common themes across both of those conditions that probably exist across a wide variety of conditions. And so ultimately, those are three things that we'd be looking to improve across both of those populations in general. And so rather than memorizing what it is, being able to kind of think on your feet when placed with these decisions of when to integrate the tech, I think is better. So to your question, um, I had a friend who had a tip-fib compound fracture. And as soon as he'd had surgery and was cleared to weight bears tolerated, I wanted to get him on the force plates because I figured, look, an easy um, closed chain exercise would be a squat. And so I had him stand and I showed him the visual feedback that we get. And it shows a force trace on the x-axis is time, the y-axis is force. And I showed him the force that was represented by both his involved and non-involved side. And there was a major disparity between the two. And so I just instructed him to try and bring those two lines together, uh, designating that he had equal force through either side. And he couldn't do that within the limits of pain that he had. So I had to scrap the squat assessment, but my assessment became, this is his quiet stance balance. He's unable to stand with equal force through both sides. 
And so we went right into treatment, which was me leaving the force trace right in front of him to see, using that visual feedback and having him just do weight shifting. And I think um, anecdotally speaking, we've both done hospital placements where before we let someone stand up or before we discharge them and get them walking, we've got to do some weight shifting on a, on a frame or even just standing with some sort of support. But there's really no way of knowing exactly how much force they're putting through either side. And for us to make a confident decision to move someone on to the next stage of rehab, we've got to know that they're capable of doing that sort of thing. Um, so to be able to scale it back and say, well, actually, he's not ready for a squat, but I've got a really suitable alternative that's going to challenge him and at least give me the confidence to know that we're taking one step at a time. It was a perfect alternative. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that it is a great example and, and gives the patient more engagement as well as they can see something rather than just moving back and forth and then seeing the data, seeing the numbers, seeing them shifting helps a lot. Uh, you, you've talked a lot before too of, of when we've, we've spoken about how you use that as part of the assessment and, and instead of just, you do, you do your regular assessment on, on the table doing whatever you usually do, but how you've incorporated that more within the assessment. Do you want to maybe expand upon that or if, or if you have any more examples of, of that instead of only doing that for performance or only doing that for you know your late stage return to play criteria, how you even use that earlier on as soon as they come in? Yeah, I think look, there's, there's multiple ways you can do it. I think ultimately when it comes down to it, there's there's a couple of reasons that you would do it. One, in that process, when we're, when we're having our initial conversation and um, taking a subjective with someone, they're telling their story. While they're telling that story and we're asking questions, in the back of my mind, it's always about formulating what I want to test objectively. So if somebody comes in and they tell me, you know, they've for the past couple of weeks, they've been having trouble bending down to pick things up off the ground. I'm starting to think just from an anatomical standpoint, what structures are involved in that? What what could be the difficult part about that? And I'll ask more probing questions as we go, but I'm thinking you've got to get flexion in those joints of the lower body. So I still haven't determined, is this a kinematic, let's say for basic terms, a quality of movement issue, or is it is it a kinetics or, or forces issue? Are they Are they weak? Um, are they not able to produce that force or are they restricted in their range of motion? And so I might ask questions in terms of, you know, are, are you are you feeling pain getting into that? Are you having difficulty getting into that position? Um, which those questions themselves will guide how I choose my um, my selection of which tech I use. So I might be more concerned with the quality of someone's movement. And so I might use the motion capture system that we have to say, well, Let's just see the quality of movement before I look at, let's say, the quantity, if you will, or the forces underlying that. So in that subjective assessment, trying to determine what would be most applicable, objectively speaking. Um, and going through that process, trying to understand what I think would be most valuable in terms of what objective information will tell me about this person's condition, what will likely yield information that I can use to make my treatment decisions, and what's something that I can actually articulate to that patient so they understand I'm not just using this cool tech because I want to impress them, but because it's going to give me some valuable information that I can then translate into uh, a valuable treatment outcome and show them that hopefully their perceived outcome or how they feel, which is ultimately what drives them in the first place, will correspond with the objective measurement data that we're gathering. Um, and there's a number of different ways to do that. Um, but I guess, for, for example, you know, if, if you look at someone with a... For, you know, early stage frozen shoulder, if they're starting to lose range of motion and, and have a bit of pain, I'm certainly not concerned about strength. They might say, you know, I'm just having trouble, you know, reaching my head to wash my hair. 
So I'm not necessarily concerned about abduction strength at that point. I just want to see, are they capable of doing it? So before we even look at strength from an objective standpoint, we might be into range of motion. And I think anecdotally speaking, from a physical therapy standpoint, we're usually asked to assess range of motion first, right? Before you even test strength, you've got to make sure someone's capable of getting into those positions. Um, so without coming to, I guess, choose a real good example, although if I, if I had to pick an example, I think it's it's the it's the person who talks about, you know, having instability, for example, right? I might look at the quality of their movement first before I look at their strength. So I might say, you know, let's let's see how you bend down and you know, you can use force plates to do a squat assessment. And it doesn't have to be a very clinical, you know, squat with a, a bar in your back like a back squat or squat with your hands on your hips. I can have someone set, I can have someone stand on a set of force decks and say, look, I just want you to demonstrate that motion that you do when you go down and pick up your young child, someone who's a, a, a new parent who's been picking up a child off the ground. They may not have squatted that low in years to pick something up, and all of a sudden they're exposed to this movement quite a bit. I can say, look, just demonstrate that for me. I can put something down. You know, how 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 much does the does the baby weigh? Let's grab a kettlebell of a similar weight. Let's try and re-provoke or recreate that scenario that causes your symptoms to be provoked because that might yield some sort of objective result that may be tied to, you know, the underlying driver of your symptoms. And if we can figure that out and then provide some sort of treatment intervention that corresponds to that, the patient will understand exactly why we did that and they'll buy into that whole idea. Um, so that's probably not the best example, but at least something I can, I can think of offhand. Yeah, no, I think that's good. I think, yeah, it tells it, it makes sure that the patient understands why they're doing it as you mentioned, and, and trying to make it as relatable as possible and explaining the process of it and the why. So I think that's all, all important. Um, how, how do you go about, though, I know you mentioned about how you choose those tests. Where do you go and how do you reason through trying to make it as simple as possible and not too complex, looking at which number, you know, determining, oh, which, how much numbers do I look at? How specific do I want to get? How many tests do I really want to do? You know, what, what are your, what's your reasoning through there? Obviously, time is going to be a thing that, you know, where they what level they want to get back to of function, et cetera. But do you have any other things that you're looking at there of trying to get the biggest and most important things and in, in ways that clin- clinicians and other physios and other practitioners using this can reason through that? No, that's a great question. I think there's a, a, mul- a multitude of criteria. And I think like you alluded to, time is the most important, right? And I think for new clinicians who get these systems, often they think, wow, I can do so many different assessments with this that they get caught up in that. And often in an initial assessment, they might go through and test 30 different things and run out of time without providing any sort of treatment to that patient. And so it's got to be circumstantial. There's a lot of patients who will come in and say, look, I just want to know what's going on, right? I know you're not going to make me feel better in one day. My concern is understanding where I am or, or what's been going on, understanding what's wrong with this. If, if that's someone's main concern, then maybe diving deep and doing a whole bunch of assessments so that you can convey to that patient, you've got a really good understanding of them. And if it will help you articulate to that patient, whatever it is that they might be experiencing, by all means, test everything under the sun. And so there might be some people who come in and and they say, look, you know, I've, I've got this issue with my back. I've had it before. Uh, the only thing that helped is when the, you know, the, the past physio got their elbow into my hip and loosened things up. Well, there might be some objective data that would help explain maybe what's causing that. There could be some underlying hip abductor weakness, for example. And if somebody's got some trigger point pain, it could be because they're just overexposing a weak muscle to more stimulus on one side. Again, that would be a really helpful test to understand what's going on. But that might that patient might say, look, I just told the physical therapist what's going to make me better. 
I know exactly what I want and what's going to make me feel better when I walk out of here. And they've got me on this, you know, unusual piece of equipment that I don't think is going to make me better. I think, like you said, you've got to be able to think critically and reason through what's going to make most sense. And if you look at that sort of triangular pyramid of evidence-based practice between sort of, you know, your own anecdotal experience, patient expectations, and and what's highly regarded in literature, you have to just kind of determine at the time what's going to be most appropriate. I think my general prescription for this would be determine if there's something, I mean, it's, this is this is probably my thought process. You go through the subjective exam, determine what it is that you want to obje- test objectively. In other words, what is some objective measure that might relate to their subjective complaint that would help you both understand what under what the underlying cause is or contributor and what will help guide at least the selection of some sort of treatment that will make that better. And so that helps me determine what kind of test I do. In terms of what the metrics are, I think I've got to determine what metric is really measuring the magnitude of that impairment. So for example, if somebody has difficulty bending down to pick something up, right, but they don't feel weak or they don't feel unstable, they might just say, look, when I get to a certain point, that's that's where I'm struggling, right? And so you can look at a, a metric like maximum negative displacement on a squat, which is essentially how far down their center of mass goes. And because we can calculate velocity and time, you can get displacement through that. And so it might be looking at, all right, you know, how far does somebody go down before their symptoms occur? And then determining, you know, in those positions between where they're asymptomatic and symptomatic, what's the difference there? And that might be enough to tell you, oh, you know, as soon as they go past this point, they start to shift their weight all the way onto the left leg for some reason. And that's where they're reporting pain in their right knee. So maybe it just tells me that I've got to look a little bit closer at that right knee in that specific circumstance. And maybe there might be something simple around understanding the difference between where they're symptomatic and non-symptomatic, which gives me an insight into making some recommendation that can help at least alleviate their symptoms. So in short, it's what's the, what's the, what's the test that's going to expose that impairment and what's the, what's the metric that's going to measure the magnitude of that impairment. So it's a bit of a mouthful there, but ultimately that's how I make that choice. And I think in terms of the metrics themselves, you can get lost in them very easily. And I'll be the first one to tell you, I do not know what all of them mean. You know, for, for a counter movement jump, there are over a hundred metrics of which I know a handful of. Um, but that being said, I think in terms of the metrics that I use and choose to display on my device when I'm testing a patient live, um, there's really three criteria I use. The first one is I've got to understand the metric. And I know that sounds kind of goofy from someone who's worked with this for a while, but I don't have a like I don't have an extensive sports science background. So there are some metrics that I don't really have a good grasp on. Um, the next one is I've got to be able to explain it to the patient. So if I've gotten in front of me, that's great. And I can understand this information. But if a patient looks over my shoulder and says, well, what is what's the significance of that? I don't want to say, oh, look, you wouldn't understand. I want to be able to explain it to them. And, and, the, and the third and probably most important thing, because otherwise I'm wasting my time, is the metric actually has to mean something. It has to contribute to my decision making around what I do with a patient. And so there's a lot of metrics that might be a bit wordy. So you can, you know, eccentric uh, peak force asymmetry on a squat. That sounds like a mouthful, but there's two phases of movement in the squat. There's eccentric, concentric. Eccentric is the down phase. Peak is just, in other words, is saying maximal. Um, force is the effort that they put into the force plates and asymmetry is the difference. So really it's this the difference in the force that you place between both legs on the way down. They can understand that. And so that might be something that's important to their treatment. 
So I think that in terms of that, having a, a logical process for how you think through what metrics you use is important. And I suggest other people use that if they don't have a good way of determining it. Because again, like we talked about earlier, I don't want to tell someone what to look at. It, it's circumstantial, right? The patient who I see, um, and that's why I don't want people to memorize things either, because somebody might present with an ACL very differently to my clinic than the person who you see. You know, one, one might be contact and the other one's non-contact, and that can change a whole bunch of things. Um, there might be other, um, you know, conditions that are present as well that I don't even know about. And so when you go in with a mindset of, oh, what were the tests? Did I memorize them? I think just having a thought process that allows you to think on your feet a little bit more, which takes a little bit of time, but it's just like learning another language. You know, it's it's first you got to learn the words, how to conjugate the verbs, that sort of thing. And then it's the stringing the sentences together. Um, and that's where I think the, the rubber meets the road with that sort of thing. I hope that answered the question. Yeah, no, uh, like I said, I think the main the main topic of this podcast, and it was more of obviously you have a great knowledge and experience of utilization of this stuff. So it's more of understanding the reasoning of how you apply versus, as you mentioned, having a strict approach of this is what I do and this is how you should do it. And I think that's, um, you know, one thing I try to get out a lot of these episodes of, of understanding people's reasoning and how they do things, which then allows other people to apply it in their own way in any circumstance. So I think that that was a very good answer there that I think um, will, a lot of people will take out of that. So you know, I mean, kind so, of building sorry, on that. Like, yeah, I just want yeah. to actually, since you mentioned that, um, just to go back to that analogy, because I think sometimes I can go down a bit of a rabbit hole and still... Um, seems a bit off topic, but to, to bring it back to that analogy of, you know, what would a surgeon do, right? I think we probably all as physical therapists struggle between the, the patient who, let's say, quote, is better versus the patient who feels better, right? And at a certain point, it's pretty easy to feel better. That's just avoiding symptoms. And so if you look at a patient who has had a broken bone, at a certain point, often they'll x-ray to follow up to see how that bone is healed, right? Now, the patient could have been symptom-free and pain-free for a while, so they could feel better. But in our minds, from a professional standpoint, they we can't say that they are better until that radiological healing has occurred. And so I think the analogous component in physical therapy is, you know, they may feel better, but we want to see that that level of function that we've been trying to attain or help them attain is where it needs to be. And I think a lot of times people fall off because they hit the I feel better mark before we've given them the you probably are better, Mark. And it's, it's, it's not a clear line in the sand by any stretch of the imagination. But I think having this tech allows us to have a, a stronger foot to stand on when it comes to that, because it's so easy for someone to say, well, yeah, I don't feel those symptoms that brought me in here in the first place. Why should I come back? And if you have a platform of knowledge backed by objective measurement that says, well, here's exactly why you should be coming back, because here's the difference between feeling better and being better. And even though we don't know exactly what being better looks like, we can say with a certain level of confidence, well, look, if, if that if that limb that you injured is still so far from being as strong as the other limb, and granted, symmetry is not always the most important thing and it's circumstantial, but having a leg to stand on when it comes to that argument around, hey, yes, you feel better, but I can confidently say I don't want you going back to that sport or that activity because I don't think you have the capabilities that you need from an objective performance standpoint, so... Sorry, I just figured to add that in because it kind of ties back into that. No, oh, yeah, that perfect. That that actually kind of goes into the next question I was going to ask. Of once you you know you do you do that initial assessment and you have that, how do you go about or how do you reason through 
how often do you retest? What are you looking for in the retests? How do you explain the, all right, this is where you are now. Here's what we want to do. And then this is why we're going to retest and, and going, going from there, I guess. How, how does that process look and how do you reason through that? Yeah, it's great questions. Um, I think there's definitely like, like most of these questions, there's obviously no right answer to it. But I think using limb symmetry index is often an easy thing to fall back on. Again, the, the the golden nugget is right. You look at the sporting environment where you get someone, you test them preseason, you know their baseline, you know what they look like when they're healthy. That's that's the dream, right? To to know that. Um, but in the allied health setting, it's rarely the case where you can do that. And I think having this this technology now and people being able to provide this, there, there is the odd chance where you know I actually had going back to that situation before. I've had friends who have come in who I've tested just because they're interested in coming in and, and doing some testing on the kit. And it just so happened that one of them who got injured, I had their baseline data, which was awesome, but it's rarely the case. So falling back on limb symmetry indexes, I think is important. Um, and then in terms of how, what you do next, I think the same way we periodize our exercise program, you can kind of periodize your testing in terms of what test type you select. So very simply, I might start from a lower extremity standpoint, with a certain class of injuries with a squat, right? It's a really nice movement that will probably yield a whole bunch of information that I can use to treat, right? So we take that example of maybe non-contact ACLs. And I've seen this quite often. And I think this is a really good differentiator between why use the tech and why not. Classically speaking, somebody has a right knee ACL non-contact injury. They've gone, they've had their scans. They're going to do some prehab before surgery. If I don't have something to objectively measure their capabilities, I'm just thinking right knee, right knee, got to make it stronger, got to improve the balance, got to make improve their range, right? But often those people will come in and on a set of force plates, they may squat. And when they squat during their eccentric phase, they'll actually shift towards their uninvolved side because they don't want to go into a more flexed or more compromising position or position of more pain. So on that eccentric phase, it will be skewed in favor of the uninvolved side, but they're often happy to push up off that leg. So when it comes to their actual squat and what I need to improve, it's not just strengthening that leg from a squat stand, from a squat pattern standpoint. It's actually understanding that eccentrically I need to load that involved side, but concentrically they're just fine. And I might, might actually want to focus on the other side. So taking a simple finding like that, where the eccentric and concentric asymmetries are not in line, that to me gives me a great way to, to to choose an exercise from there. I might do, you know, a single leg stand to sit on the involved side, have them switch legs and then stand up on the other side. So we're already addressing that main factor, that main impairment that we've um, assessed immediately. And then with that squat, as soon as they've hit those markers of their limb symmetry index, I might be going into then a squat jump where what I'm doing is I'm actually adding velocity just in that concentric phase, not in the eccentric, because like we said, that often can be a bit more provocative. So they've got on a squat jump as much time as they need to get down to that point where they want to begin their jump, use as much velocity and force as they'd like just to clear the ground to achieve a float phase to make it a jump and not a squat again. Um, and then they land nice and soft. And so I might go from a squat once they hit their limb symmetry index. And obviously not just from an objective, but from a subjective standpoint, they're not reporting pain. Happy to progress them onto something like a squat jump. If they're okay when it comes to adding a little bit of velocity in that concentric phase, I might then make it a counter movement jump. So then they've got velocity both in the eccentric and the concentric phase, starting to utilize that stretch shortening cycle a little, little bit. And they're going to obviously hit a 
greater potential. And I think it's not a coincidence that more force will be applied and everyone likes to see progression in their rehab. So when you can show a patient that when they go from a squat jump to a counter movement jump, they're likely jumping higher, helps them. It makes them feel good, right? You certainly wouldn't want to do it the other way. And even in the order of an assessment, if you did a counter movement jump and a squat jump, a patient might not know inherently that what I've just done is remove the main driver, which is that stretch shortening cycle. And so if I show them the data, even just in that order, not telling them that one is obviously going to provide more power than the other most most of the time, they might be discouraged. Um, and so choosing your tests that add some level of difficulty or add in some other variable that you haven't exposed that patient to helps determine what order you go in. And there's no right or wrong with that. It just depends on on what you're doing. So just just that example of that sort of lower body battery, which is, you know, I would say a squat first, maybe then a squat jump, then a counter movement jump. You can even add in a Balakov jump, which is counter movement jump with their arms involved, because that will probably improve performance and make it somewhat more applicable to their sport. Because I would say most athletes who jump don't jump with their hands on their hips. Um, <laughs> so that's probably a, a very quick and easy example of it. But I would say between the limb symmetry index and the variables of the actual test types themselves, that's probably how I'd make that decision. Um, but yeah, probably, probably without having a specific example, that's kind of the, the general framework I would use. Yeah, no, and with that, I think it's a good point too of, you mentioned obviously time is one of the biggest issues a lot of the time, whether that be you know in the clinic or even with an athlete, sometimes you want to have as much time in, in, a, in a sports setting. And, and you mentioned utilizing those even as exercises so you're testing and seeing live feedback and getting objective data but that still might be you know that might be part of the rehab that might be a rehab exercise that you're doing these while you're on the force plates just to get data is that something you do often or is there do you want to expand upon that topic yeah that's that's a great point as well um and i think often we see the tech and 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 it's considered assessment technology and only one of our one of our um systems at the moment has a training feature on it. But I, I think, you know, training or, or treatment and assessment are, are not necessarily very different. It's just how you look at it, right? So a squat can be as diagnostic or a, a assessment oriented as, as it is treatment oriented, right? Whether I'm using it to provide feedback that I then use to make a decision, or if it's just I'm giving it to that patient to make them stronger, right? They're really the same thing, just in a different context. And so often what will happen is, for example, like just to skew away from the force decks for a second, but um, I've had patients who recovered from hamstring injuries and, and putting the live force trace in front of them when they get in a Nord board, whether they're even just doing isometrics. I think one of the difficult things that we see is someone's inability to determine how much force they're putting through either side, because we don't have an internal way of measuring how much force we measure in effort, right? So if you've got an injured side and a non-injured side, Right? An, an 8 out of 10 effort on an injured side and an 8 out of 10 effort on a non-injured side might be might feel equal to you, but that's just the intrinsic sensation that you get. It's not the output. So an 8 out of 10 effort on an injured side might produce only 50% of the force that an 8 out of 10 on the non-injured side does. So if you are in a leg press machine and you think, all right, they feel even because I'm putting the same effort through both, I've still got no idea how much force you're putting through either side. And so often being able to provide that force trace for someone while they're doing their repetitions is invaluable. And so it's tougher with your quicker ballistic movements on force plates. So if it's a jump, it's probably hard to do because you can't get that feedback and make a decision around it quick enough to change when you're adding velocity to your movements. But by all means, I can do it with a 
I can do it with the squat. I can do it with um, the Nordic hamstring assessment quite often. Um, we could do it with isometrics as well. Um, so a patient could be in any position and I could use the iPad or even their phone if they wanted to. And so often I will put them in a position like that. I think a common application for that is, you know, your, your classic tendinopathy isometrics where you might have someone doing like a seated um, calf raise or seated plantar flexion on the force plates where they're um, in a seated position like a typical seated calf raise um, apparatus, but there's a bar with either J-hooks preventing it from moving or something create, making it an immovable object. And I'm setting a goal of push to three out of 10 pain, maybe as, as a starting point, see what that um, force yields. And then what I might say to them next time is I'll put the iPad in front of them and either say, let's do the same thing, push to a three out of 10 pain, see how the force changes, or just flip the variables and say, hey, I want you to get to this level of force and then tell me how your pain is. So one way or another, we're using it still as a hybrid of assessment because it's giving me information that is important to gather and helps inform my future decisions. But it's still a training modality nonetheless because it's part of my intervention. Um, so, yeah, I think in terms of examples, it's probably a pretty good one. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, having... You know, like I said, a lot of people do that in their turn to play process as a as an end stage test. But I think doing it as a you know, initial objective measure as well as a rehab tool, so like while you're doing the exercise, are two things that are, aren't always as common. So I think those are, are great points of of how it's used there. You mentioned the importance of having a baseline uh, of making it a lot easier in in the rehab and process. So. You know, I know you've done a lot with with sporting teams of of trying to get you know baselines and and doing that preseason assessment. So, do you maybe want to talk a little bit about um, your reasonings of how you go through that of of trying to get preseason assessment for teams and um, things you're looking for within that or general data you want to get? Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think I don't think it's been said by one person. I couldn't quote them, but I think one of the the important things that i've heard and I, or probably a lot of people have said it but it, it's it's really resonated is that if somebody gets an injury presumably we've got to get them back to where they were and better because if they were in a position where they could get injured ideally they weren't strong enough or they weren't robust enough or they they weren't in a position where they were able to handle whatever the stimulus was that caused that injury in the first place so at least knowing where they were presumably at the time of that injury gives us confidence to say, all right, we've got to get back there and more. Now, granted, it might be a bit more reliable in a sports team when you've got a population who's fairly well-trained and, and a baseline might actually be representative of their um, maximal capabilities. When it comes to baseline in the general population, I think it's great to have because like we talked about in that previous question, when you want to tell someone, all right, where are they, right? Are you, are you do you feel better? Maybe. But are you actually better? And again, that's not something that we can answer with concrete certainty. But to say, look, often and you put it in, if, if you put it to a patient and say, look, let's say 100 percent is where you were prior to this injury happening. It's one of the questions I probably ask almost every time in an initial assessment, often in a lot of follow ups. I would say if 100 percent if, if is where you were beforehand. Right. And you had to tell a friend of yours where you are now. If you're saying, oh, you know, look, I'm, I feel like I'm 50 percent. I feel like I'm 60 percent. I want to know that. I want to know where you feel like you are. And I want to know, let's say, let's say, Pat, you said to me, look, I feel like I'm, I'm 60, 60 to 70 percent better. My follow up question is of that 30 to 40 percent remaining to get you to 100. What do you attribute that to? Right. What in your mind is going to get you better? Because I can do all this testing and I can see that 
I, in my mind, you've got to get a lot stronger. You've got to improve range of motion, right? But your main complaint might be, look, I just want to be out of pain, right? Or I just, I, I just feel really stiff. I just don't, I don't want to feel as stiff anymore. And so in, in meshing that understanding of objective data that I gather with a patient expectations, the two might be completely different. So there's no reason that you can't address them both, but I think it's important to understand both. And I think in the absence of having baseline data, I think where we're going as a profession, both in sport and occupational sciences, is we're starting to understand more and more what the physical demands are for certain activities, that whether we have the baseline data or not, we can still understand what the metrics are or what, what the criterion are for a certain person to re return to a certain activity. So, you know, you, you look at the data around running and how much force is, is transmitted through certain muscles in the lower limb during certain speeds and certain phases of gait. With all that information that we've been able to gather over time, we can use some of our testing metrics to say, look, I've never seen you before. But I know from a sports science standpoint what the demands are of this activity. So regardless of where you were before, I know that if you want to perform this activity, this is where you have to be. So I'm hoping that as we move into the future for different sports, for different activities, for different professions, we'll start to gather more normative data around what is necessary to perform a certain activity. So at that point, we won't necessarily need to rely as much on baseline data because I think it's one of those things, like like you said, it's kind of that golden nugget where if you have it, it's great, and it doesn't tell you everything. But often when you don't have it, you wished you had it. Whereas if we don't have to worry about that and say, well, I don't know what the baseline is, and I've never seen you before, and even if I had baseline, it might not tell me everything. But I know where you want to get to, and where if you want if where you want to get to maybe nowhere near what your baseline is, then we don't need to think about that at all, and we just need to train or treat with a goal in mind. And if that goal is concrete around, all right these are the amount of forces that you are going to have to exhibit through your lower limb in this scenario, then we can just train for that. And I don't think it's just going to be as simple as that, but as we start to understand activities more scientifically, hopefully we'll be able to make more confident, confident decisions around, Hey, look, I don't know where you started, but I know this is where I need to get you. And so I'm hoping that that one answers the question, but two kind of is the direction that we're going in based, you know, based around the ubiquity of obsessed, uh, ob objective excuse me measurement yeah and, and oh, that answers it well and you mentioned trying to get back to a at least or probably better than the original level they had uh and trying to pair up with you know what level do they need to get to for specific activities uh i know valdez talked about or trying to get general baselines through feedback with their devices are you allowed to speak on uh how how that's going to that are they trying to expand upon that and build a library um of general numbers of trying to get different sports populations ages genders etc back or or how all that's going um well in terms of the data we capture look i'm, I'm not an expert on this and, and there are folks in our measurement team who are, who are concerned with those sorts of details um i do know that the normative data sets that we've been able to generate are based on anonymized data and so in terms of where that um, where those data sets are going, I'm not in the position to, to speak on that. I can only talk about what it is that we currently have available. And partially, that's just not information that, that I'm across regardless. Um, but I think the, the idea of being able to capture data on so many people across the population, again, not just in the performance space, but in, in the general population, 
is, is to satisfy that age old question that we get from just about anyone who does an assessment, which is, is this good? Right. If I do a test, they say, you know, is this good? Um, is this bad? Where does my score rank amongst my peers? And I think that's the the question that like we'd like to be able to answer because so many things are circumstantial. And when it comes to normative data, it's it's you know, what's what's the norm you're looking for? Right. Um, and do I want to know what the norm is for grip strength in my age bracket? Is it in the sport that I'm playing? Is it in is it amongst the other physical therapists in the world? What What is the population I want to compare myself against? And I think the hope is that as we start to get more and more data and understand the background of the populations that we're gathering data on, it would be to provide those answers that we're talking about and make information available to clinicians so that they can make confident decisions. And I think that's really what it comes down to is that, you know, it's not just having data for the sake of having data, but it's for having data so that one, we can answer that question. And I think that question really informs the patient and it gets them to buy in. And if I get a question from a patient or anyone who does testing who wants to know that, it tells me that they're they're bought in. They, they want to know the answer because it has a significance to them. And if they can say, all right, well, you know, I'm in the I'm in the 40th percentile and the 30th percentile, I've got a bit of work to do. If If knowing that number is going to drive them to be motivated to improve, then it's really, really valuable. If knowing that they're in a great space and it gives them satisfaction around the fact that they've attempted some intervention or they've added exercise into their life and they've actually seen an improvement in their standing, if it reinforces the good behavior, absolutely. Um, I'm not sure if that answers the question, but I'm not the not the guy to answer a lot when it comes to the overall approach with um, data capture, but I, I think at least from my perspective as a clinician um, and having access to normative data and, and and seeing that space grow, that's where it's most valuable to me, I think, in patient interactions. Yeah, like I so said, that's the point of, I guess, as you mentioned, just trying to make it as specific to the population and whether I just, yeah, I was wondering if you guys had any uh, projects if or if you knew of any working on, but obviously you can go out there and find papers on as specific as population as you can. Obviously, it's probably harder with gen pop as they're not always researched as much as, you know, in the, in the athletic setting where they have um, all that equipment. But yeah, just making sure it's, you know, the importance of also not, ju- uh, yeah, as you mentioned, the age old question of is this good or, you know, what do I need to get to? Um, I think that's that's an important thing. Uh, you, you know, you mentioned a lot during this as well of not only, you know, I think a lot of times when people think of this, it's, Okay, they have to hit a certain jump height. They have to hit a certain strength. Um, they have to do certain things. But you mentioned too a lot about movement, how they move. You know, do they have ranges of motion, things like that. Uh, do you maybe want to expand a little bit more on that? Because I know you, you, you guys have even added in the video with the kind of movement jump now, so you can watch the kind of movement jump. Because I guess a lot of times, some people might say, "Oh, yeah, yeah this week they can produce that force. They can jump that high." But that their jump is you know, major. Com- they're compensating majorly on different things. So while while they're still producing and it's not producing in the right way, or while they're doing this certain movement, they might have this strength, but they're not getting it the right way. I guess is is there ways that you try and look at that and also utilize this tech not only for the performance, you know, jump height, strength, etc., but the movement capabilities as well. Yeah, I think there's probably two main reasons for that. Um, I think you bring bring up a good point. I think first is one. 
as practitioners, we're not just concerned with with quantity, we're concerned with quality. And even though that may not be as tangible, it's one of the languages that we commonly speak in, right? And and even without this tech, I think especially without using this tech, we're going to be extraordinarily focused on on quality of movement. And so where we can provide feedback in that space, it really helps. Um, I think the, the four stick vision feature with which you're alluding to has been an absolute game changer. It's probably one of my favorite, if not favorite features on, on any system that we have. And I think the reason that is, is one, it's just cool to begin with. And it's helped me understand force traces a little bit better. But when you use that feature, there's really three layers of, of data that are being presented. And first is the force trace. And the force trace is easy on firsthand to grasp because as soon as a patient steps on a set of force plates, I will show them essentially what it is that they're doing, right? I'll show them what the blue line is representing the force to the left leg orange line representing the force of the right leg and the white line, which is cumulative force. I haven't leaned back side to side so they can see those lines move reciprocally. So they understand what that force trace signifies. But as soon as we've done a couple tests, all they see is a whole bunch of lines put together and it looks like to them a, an unusual EKG and there's not much to interpret there. And so that kind of goes out the window once they've done their movements. And the next layer of data is the actual numbers or the metrics that we see. And those are helpful because they give me a lot of insights and I can understand them and I can try and articulate to a patient, but a patient doesn't see themselves in numbers. They see themselves in movement. So once I kind of go over the force trace and say, all right, you know, Pat, you just did that, you did that counter movement jump. If you notice that blue line is constantly above the orange line, meaning that there's more force placed through your left leg, you can say, all right, well, I feel like I did more on my left leg, but it still doesn't tell me what phases that force disparity occurred in. So then I can go to my metrics and see, all right, what's the actual magnitude of that but then if I really want to convey it to you in a way that you can understand, I flip over to the video and I say, well, Pat, remember we said that on that eccentric phase of your jump or on the way down, you really put more force on the left side. If I scrub slowly through that video and you see yourself doing that, it's just a much more tangible uh, means of feedback that you can then take and say, all right, well, yeah, I know you said I put more force through there and you explained it was 20% more force. But now I can actually see at what point I start to shift towards that side. So that sort of feedback of results from a from a motor learning standpoint is really, really helpful for you to then take and then apply when we test again. So that kind of goes back and forth between that assessment and treatment where I've showed you what it is that you've done, provided a really helpful feedback tool where you're not just seeing numbers, but you're seeing yourself. As soon as you go back and perform that movement again, you actually have an understanding of what it is, what is it that I was doing and what is it that I have to do to help kind of rectify that. And so I think that's been just a, a game changing feature to have. And, and that being said, on some of our other assessments, it's still worth always looking at the patient when they're doing it. I mean, some people have been more autonomous and I've heard of people, you know, setting up a set of force plates and teaching their athletes to go in on their own, select their name, do their jump. And that's all well and good. And I think increasing athlete and patient autonomy is paramount. And I, I applaud anyone who does that. I still think whenever possible, using a critical eye regardless is, is always helpful. And so not losing that personal aspect of care where you're actually still analyzing everything that's going on. Um, if, if that sort of touches on what you're getting at. Yeah, hundred percent. Like I said, as you mentioned it, having that, coaches I too and not just only going off of you you scored this and then that's it um that's that's all I wanted to do I think that's something important that that you touched on there uh last thing I wanted to talk about real quickly here then I'll just get going is um you know you you, you talk about trying to promote that clinical reasoning 
of, of utilization of this and, and trying to make it as specific as possible as well as not overcomplicating it. Um, you know, they, they have that custom ISO testing feature on a lot of these um, pieces of equipment you guys have. Uh, do you want to maybe expand upon that and, and some ways that people or different clinicians have tried to utilize this stuff that isn't always um, one of the main, main selected tests or ones that ideas that you guys have originally had and, and how that, you know, you can get a little bit creative with it as well. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the unique thing about the, the force plates on like some of the other devices is on the other devices, the, the force traces is fairly simple. You've got force on your y-axis and time on your x-axis. And usually we represent it with a green dotted line, which signifies the rep detection threshold. As soon as you cross that with a certain amount of force, a repetition has been detected. But that's usually with your isometric testing. On the force plates, because it's not just isometric, you actually have to provide a force trace that mimics a certain movement or a certain intention for repetition to be detected. Luckily, like you said, with isometric testing, it's a very, uh, I guess, very common or very simple force profile where you have a constant bit of force, which is usually the limb or um, the body part that's in contact with the force transducer or the force plate in this case. You see a spike in that force held for a certain designated period of time, and then it drops off. So it literally almost looks like a, a table. And there's a lot of different reasons that people want to test isometric force in different positions. If you want to isolate a, a certain joint or you want to isolate a, an intended movement, it's a really easy way to do it. And so we found out that people really, really want to get creative. And I think probably the most notable with the, with this would be some of the work that Alex Natera does um, down at the New South Wales Institute of Sport. Um, and he's become a stalwart for this. And people around the world have kind of gotten a, gotten on to what he's doing. Um, and he's been a phenomenal advocate for using the systems for understanding the isometric capabilities that somebody has. Because I think isometrics are one of those classic um training modalities that if you don't measure them, you've got no idea really what someone is doing from an effort standpoint. Um, and it's all well and good to look at someone's facial expression, but we know that's pretty easy to fake. And so from the from the custom isometric feature, I think that's where we've seen people get a bit more creative. So kind of measuring that tricep surrey complex with seated and standing calf raises. Um, common is the, is the prone IYT test, looking at the shoulder in different positions. What else have we had? Um, I've had some people, we've, we've seen people do some like long lever hamstring isometrics. So lying not quite supine with a bit of knee flexion, having a bar in a fixed position just, just above the hips and the force plates under the feet and then going into a long lever hamstring bridge isometric. That's been pretty helpful for some people to look at um, isometric hip extension slash hamstring strength in some of those critical positions. What else have we had? We've had some people do, um, for example, like a, a hip thruster. So looking at sort of end range hip extension strength, we can do that both double and single leg. And I think for some people who may ascribe to that sort of force vector training for, for sprinting, for example, and want to look at, you know, because you can't really isolate glute strength with it necessarily, but you might want to look at just pure hip extension strength. We can get people basically in a in a upper range hip thruster position. So you can imagine sort of, hip at zero degrees extension, knees 90 degree flexion with the force plates under the knees and then a bar above the hips and kind of doing that hip thruster movement into the bar and the majority of that force being um, emanated through the force plates. That's been a good way to look at it. So those are probably the most common ones that I've seen. Um, but like you said, people are getting creative with with different things. I mean, I've oh, I, I had someone who does calisthenics come in and, and want to do a 
um, handstand on the force plates for, for whatever reason. Uh, they, I, I'm certainly incapable of demonstrating it, um, but it's something that they wanted to see. So they didn't, we didn't do it as an isometric test. They could have. Um, for them, what we ended up doing was actually an isometric push-up test where I put them into, where I put the force decks under a rig with a bar that was just loaded with weight. And essentially what I had them do was do a push-up into that bar, which was presumably immovable. Um, and so rather than a one RM chest press type uh, assessment, and I'm not saying by any stretch of the imagination that they're the same, but if you just want to look at max force through that pressing position, it might be a nice suitable alternative that's easy to do with a lot of people and probably saves a bit of time. But again, I'm not not staking claim that it's a it's an equal alternative to a bench. Um, but yeah, that's pr- probably the most common that I've seen so far. Yeah, no, great. I think I think that uh, the episode covers a lot of of how it's again utilized and the reasonings through how you utilize it. So I think um, that a lot of people take away some great points from that. So thanks, thanks for taking the time to be on. Um, if you want to just share, you know, where people can get in contact you, with you, involved, where you share information, um, and then uh, I'll put those in the show notes. Yeah, thanks. Um, and I appreciate you having me and it's always good to talk about this. And uh, I like when people fire questions at me because it's, it's got to make me think. And I use this stuff all day, but I certainly need to be able to articulate this information if I'm if I'm any good with it. Uh, in terms of where to find me, I'm, I'm always happy to field emails. Um, my email is just my first initial S dot B-I-R-G-E at vault.com. be happy to answer any questions. And I, I have made a, a professional Instagram page. Um, probably kind of corny, but it's, it's it's sports underscore rehab underscore physio. Um, and I've tried to highlight some of the stuff that we utilize the the tech for. Um, you'll quickly find out that I'm not a social media, social media guru with, um, by any means, uh, but trying to just put, put some information out there that might help people both of the general population and of a clinical background sort of understand what we do from a testing standpoint and where, where it fits in. Um, and I'm hoping, oh, I'm always happy to discuss this sort of thing, um, share my opinions and, and more importantly, love to hear from other, any other people who are interested in adopting tech or have experience with, with technology in, in clinical or, or sports performance practice. Perfect. Thanks again. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to No Week Links. If you'd enjoyed the show and could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, it would be greatly appreciated. If you're interested in any other content I put out, you can follow me on Instagram at Coach Patrick Wood or Twitter at Coach Patty Wood. Thanks again for listening.